0: Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 13 to verse 21. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you in the name of your Son that you would take the truth that we have just read and you would drive it into our hearts. And past our thick heads, and that we would understand and see the glorious truth that we just read. Father, thank you for this beautiful message. Help us to respond to it. We pray, and we give you glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've entitled this message, this sermon, The message from heaven. The message from heaven. And I'd like us to notice that in the passage that we've just read, verse 13 to 21, this passage can be divided into three sections. There's three major points here that are made. The first is in verse 13. Jesus tells us about the Son of Man, from heaven. And what we have here in the first section of this passage is a statement about the messenger from heaven. The messenger from heaven. And then the second section is verse 14 to verse 17 and here we have the message from heaven. We're told about what the son of man came out of heaven to do and for what reason he came. Why he came. And it is one of the greatest statements in the Bible on the love of God. Amen? In the third section of this passage that we read, which is verse 18 to 21, we're told about the two responses to the message from heaven. We're shown that when light comes into the world, there's only two possible options for mankind. There's only two possible options for you as an individual. And a person must choose between evil and truth when the light comes. That's your only option. The light comes to you, and you've got two options. Choose evil or choose the truth. And it's fair to say, I believe, that this passage that we read basically summarizes the main contours of the Christian faith, doesn't it? This is the basic outline of Christianity. Jesus has come. He has revealed to us the truth and we all have to respond. That's the basic contours of the Christian faith. The son of God has come. And what do we do with what he has brought? So this morning, I'm just going to follow this outline We'll first talk about verse 13, the messenger from heaven, then the message from heaven, and then the two responses to the message from heaven. So first of all, let's read verse 13 again. The messenger from heaven. Now some of your translations may be different than mine. The New American Standard reads, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Period. Now some of your translations might read the son of man who is in heaven. But textual scholars of the Bible believe that last phrase who is in heaven was, is probably not original to the text. So the New American Standard and probably if you have a modern uh, translation it will say something like this. No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Now, although this saying is terse and therefore rather difficult to interpret, it seems conclusive to me, brothers and sisters, that what this saying of Jesus does is it sweeps aside all false legends of people ascending into heaven and coming back to tell the tale. Let me say that again. Even though this is a terse statement, it's kind of hard to understand because it's terse, I believe what Jesus does here is he sweeps aside as false all legends of people ascending into heaven and coming back to tell the tale. Now I've said this statement is terse. What I mean by that is there's a lot in this statement and we have to unpack the concisely stated phrases here. So there's a lot in the phrases uh, of this verse. If we just superficially read the verse, we run into a problem, don't we? Because then the verse, the saying of Jesus would be, no one has ever ascended into heaven, period. Look at the verse here. If you just read it superficially, if you don't realize it's a terse statement, there's a lot in there, you have to kind of unpack it. Just on the surface, he's saying no one has ascended into heaven, ever. What does that mean for Enoch, Elijah, right? Um, all the saints. At least if we, if, we, if we understand that the saints, when they die, go to heaven. What does Jesus mean? If you recall the context we've been studying for the last two weeks, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and in the immediate context, verse 11 and 12 He's talking about teaching earthly and heavenly things, right? And so the context of this saying is teaching. And he's he's actually referring to his authority as a teacher, to his own authority as a teacher, that I speak to you of these earthly things and of these heavenly things. That's what he says in verse 12. And so in the context, he's discussing himself as the teacher. And I believe in verse 13, Jesus is making a statement about his authority as a teacher to teach. So that's the textual context. There's also a cultural context to this statement. In Jesus's day, there were legends of people ascending into heaven and coming back to tell the tale. Maybe you've heard of uh, a work called the Book of Enoch. It's 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 a fictional work based upon the real character Enoch in the Bible and basically it's a, it's a book saying I went into heaven and, and here's what I saw when I, when I, and I come back to tell the tale. Or another work that was contemporary in Jesus' day was The Life of Adam and Eve. And it's again a fictional story passed as the truth in which there's some secret knowledge that's given where it is thought that Adam went into heaven. Adam ascended into heaven and came back and got to tell his sons and his daughters about what was there. And so these things were in the culture as well. Have you ever heard any stories like that before, of people ascending into heaven and coming back to tell the tale? In the light of both the textual and the cultural context, many commentators believe that this is what Jesus means in verse 13. No one has ever ascended into heaven so as to be able to teach with authority knowing what is up there firsthand. I'm teaching you of earthly things what's going to happen if I teach you of heavenly things? No one's ever gone up there and seen that. No one's ever gone up there and come back to be able to be a teacher and start teaching you about that stuff. But I have come from heaven. The son of man. One commentator paraphrases the verse this way and I think it's It's accurate. Quote, None of your earthly teachers can really teach you about heaven because none of them have actually been there. However, I have been there. In fact, it is my home. I have come to you from heaven and I have brought with me experiential knowledge of that place. My testimony carries weight. I can tell you the truth about salvation. It reminds me of... Verse 18 of chapter 1 in the prologue of the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, No one has seen God at any time. Remember that verse? Similar. But the only begotten Son, who's in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. So there's a sense, I believe those two verses are saying ultimately the same thing. No one has seen God any time. No one has ever ascended into heaven and come back to tell you about it. But the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he is the one who is teaching with authority on these matters. I don't believe Jesus is saying no one has ever gone to heaven. As I said, I believe that the saints of the Lord, when they die, go to heaven. I don't believe Jesus is saying that no one has ever had a vision of heavenly things or had a vision of the throne. But no one has ever ascended bodily into heaven and returned to tell the tale and to teach with authority on those matters. But I, the Son of Man, have come from heaven to tell you the truth. Here's another thing Jesus is not saying in verse 13. Jesus is not saying that everyone who will go to heaven has first come down from heaven. Have you ever heard that interpretation? If you've not ever heard that interpretation, it's probably because you're not from Utah. This This is the way that Mormons interpret verse 13. Mormons interpret verse 13 to mean that Jesus is making a statement about all of us. And he's saying, no one has ever ascended into heaven, which is, according to the Mormon view, basically everybody, what we're going to do. No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven. So they interpret this as a universal statement about everyone. Everyone's come down from heaven, therefore, whoever goes back up there has come from there. And they use this verse to prove the unbiblical idea of a pre-mortal life. That we all existed in heaven before, and then we came down here, and it's because we were there before that we're going to go back. They missed the context. The context is about Jesus as a teacher, and they missed the next part of the verse, the Son of Man, right? It's not about you and me, it's about Jesus, No one's ever ascended into heaven. No one's ever gone up there and and bodily ascended and seen the things and have come down to teach. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven to teach. It's about Him. Of all the teachers on earth who have ever taught, Jesus has a matchless authority, my friends, to teach about God. A matchless authority. Because he, hol- he alone comes from heaven with that first-hand experience. And not only has Jesus been there, Jesus is the creator of heaven and of earth. He hasn't just been there. He's the creator of heaven. Amen? He's the center point and focal point of heaven. When you and I go to heaven, we're going to notice that it's all about Jesus. He's not just been there and he's kind of walked around and noticed what's going on. He is the center of heaven because heaven and earth were made by him and were made for him. When we read this verse, we should realize our, our earth, you and I, have been unimaginably Privileged to have this messenger. Do you get that point? The message from heaven isn't coming secondhand; it's coming firsthand from God Himself, who put on flesh and came to us to tell Him about, tell us about Himself and about the heavenly things. Isn't that an amazing? We are unspeakably privileged to have this messenger, the very God from heaven, who knows what's going on up there. Who created it. And us. And it's all about him. So this saying sweeps aside legends of people who have ascended into heaven and come back to tell the tale. It sweeps aside the legend's in Jesus' day that existed, and it sweeps aside the legends, I believe, that follow after the day of Jesus as well. Here's a famous legend of someone ascending into heaven that's contemporary, that's important to our own day in the 21st century. Do you know what I'm thinking of? So, over a billion people in this world believe strongly that Muhammad ascended bodily into heaven. In fact, they believe he went up through a series of heavens, right to the highest heaven where God is, and talked about God. This is called Muhammad's night journey. He told told the tale. He said, yeah, I, I ascended into heaven one night. And what did he come back with to tell us? Well, he came back to tell us that he had a little debate with God. God told Muhammad, according to Muhammad, that Muslims were to pray 50 times a day. And Muhammad debated with him and whittled it down to 40 times a day, whittled it down to 30 times a day, whittled it down to 20 times, 10 times, and finally got God to, to concede five times a day. That is the basis for which Muslims pray five times a day because they believe Muhammad ascended into heaven, received that instruction, and came back to tell the tale. All such claims are false. No one has ascended into heaven but the Son of Man who has descended from heaven. and because Jesus himself the son of god comes down from heaven all other people who claim to have gone up there and come down really not only are they false but they're pointless we have first hand we have the first hand messenger amen we have god himself to teach us about himself so let us this morning recall who the messenger is as christians we believe in prophets. We believe in second-hand information. God tells Moses to tell the people. But as Christians, we believe something even more than that, don't we? We believe that God himself firsthand has come to us and delivered the message from heaven. Christianity is direct from God. The messenger from heaven is Christ Jesus, the Son of God. If he is the messenger, what a messenger he is, what must the message be? Well, we turn our attention to that now. Verse 14 through 17. I'd like to read it again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now all of these go together, verse 14 through 17. Everything that's said goes together. And all of this, brothers and sisters, is more beautiful than any piece of music that you will ever hear, than anything you have ever seen and anything you will ever see. This is beautiful. It is the heart of the message from heaven. It is the message of Christianity. I'd like to draw our attention to verse 16, which I believe is the center point of the message from heaven. Verse 14, 15, and 17 are really just emanations from verse 16. Have you, did you notice that? Verse 14, 15, and 17 are really just unpacking verse 16, giving 16 explanation and just kind of emanating from it. But verse 16 is the center. About verse 16, the scholar F.F. F. Bruce commented that more probably have found the way of life through these words, than through any other biblical text. It's a powerful verse. I wonder when we do go to heaven and we talk with the saints, how many will say it was John three sixteen that finally revealed to me what Christianity was all about, right? And what brought hope and peace to my soul. What is the message from heaven? What is the message firsthand from the messenger? We see in this section, it is a message about God. It is a message about love. It's a message about life and death. It's a message about condemnation and salvation. This is the message from heaven. And all of these things, God, life, life, God, love, life, death, condemnation, and salvation are all so interrelated with one another that we really can't understand one of those things apart from all the rest. Now listen to this. For God so loved. We see that it is primarily a message about a God of love. Isn't that wonderful? It's not secondhand. God comes down out of heaven as the messenger to deliver the message. You want to know what's going on up in heaven where no one has ever ascended and come back to tell the tale? You want to know what's going on up there with God? I have a message for this world. It's a message about God. It's a message about His love, it's a message about God and his love. And we see in John 3.16 that God's love is made known to us, not only through Jesus speaking about it, but in the concrete historical action of God giving his son for the life of the world. This is how you know the love of God. Jesus came down not just to say God is a God of love, but to show that God is a God of love. In fact, his coming testifies and declares and manifests and demonstrates the love of God. So there's something concrete, historical as Christians, and we can point to and say, in history, God has demonstrated his love, not simply by word, but by deed. Now, how does this historical action show God's love? Could you imagine going up to a friend of yours and saying, I love you so much, I have given my son for you. They might think you're crazy, right? What do you mean? How does that demonstrate that you love me, giving up your child for me? That's crazy. So how does God giving his son reveal the love of God? There's a backdrop to this, isn't there? There's a backdrop To his giving his son. And that is the serious problem of humankind. If you notice in verse 17, Jesus uses the word saved. He says that he sent his son into the world. God sent his son into the world to save the world. That is, there's a serious problem, serious enough that God sends his son into the world to save the world. That is, there's no other way for the world to be saved. The word saved should, in our minds, conjure up the ideas of danger. And if you want to know how serious of a danger is the world in, well, God sent his son into the world to save. So it's a really serious danger. What is the danger? We've talked about this already. Brothers and sisters, humankind is messed up. Amen? Now, most people don't agree with that statement, you know? They think, human, yeah, humankind is messed up. How messed up, Eli? I mean, okay, I know we have problems. When the Bible talks about humankind being messed up, it's not a little messed up. You are not a little messed up to God. If you were just a little messed up to God, he wouldn't have needed to send his son to save you. You're so messed up... <laughs> And I'm so messed up that we have to be told how messed up we are by God because we don't even know how messed up we are, right? We're so hopelessly sinful that we don't even see how sinful we are. My friends, just because you don't see how messed up you are doesn't mean you're not messed up, you know? Just because you know, a person hears the preaching of the, of the Christian gospel and they say, I really don't believe I'm that sinful doesn't mean they aren't that sinful, In fact, them not seeing how sinful they are is a evidence of how sinful they are and how messed up they are. Humankind collectively and individually, each of us, are seriously messed up. There's a major problem. We looked at that uh, in the last two weeks when we were looking at the uh, survey through the Bible of humanity. And we saw that the Bible testifies of humanity's sin, idolatry, narcissism, evil. The whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. It's one long story of how messed up and evil human beings are. And there's not a verse in the Bible that says different, that says, you know, human beings really aren't all that bad. There's not a verse in the Bible that says that. If a human being has anything good, it's because of God. But if we look at humanity as a, as a collective unity, we might say, yeah, collectively we're bad, but maybe as an individual we're not so bad. Maybe individually there's exceptions. But I'd like to ask each of us this morning, who of us individually has not proved by his own life or her own life, the vileness and idolatry of human nature. Is there anyone here this morning who can stand up and say, I have proved by my own life the uprightness, the honesty, the integrity, the worthiness of human beings. Who of us can stand up and say, I have walked uprightly just as God designed for me to walk, just as he commanded, just as he envisioned when he created us in his image. I have walked that way in perfect love for God and for my neighbor. Who of us has not violated God by not giving him thanks by not being thankful to him, by murmuring and complaining to him, by not worshiping him and giving him glory, by not obeying him and giving him the obedience that he deserves as our God and our creator and our king? Who of us has not instead preferred the lies of the devil to the truth of God? Who of us has not preferred vanity to, uh, so that we could serve ourselves instead of God? Is anyone here an exception? Who of us hasn't violated our neighbors? Who are just like us, by the way? Our neighbor is someone exactly like ourselves, but who of us hasn't violated him or her through envy? hurtful words can anyone stand up and say i've never been envious towards another person whenever another whenever my neighbor receives something good i'm happy for them always i never wish i was in their place i never have said a hurtful word to another person who is like myself i've never stolen i've never committed adultery both the phys- physical act and with my eyes i've never done it i've always been faithful I've never treated another human being as a disposable object just to benefit myself. The Bible says no one can stand up and say that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, humanity has made great strides forward with technology. Really, we have. We've advanced technologically enormously, not at all in morals. Omar Bradley, uh, a U.S. general who passed away, said that ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. Don't be deceived by technology and think human beings are getting better and better and better. No, it's not true. Our technology is getting better and better. But we remain ethical infants. We remain immoral. We have not made strides forward in morality. The poet Schiller wrote this in one of his poems. Sunk in vilest degradation, man his loathsomeness displays. That's how a poet captures humanity. We've sunk in vilest degradation. We haven't gotten out either. And our loathsomeness is displayed for all to see. The prophet Isaiah says, even our righteousnesses are filthy rags to God. That is, the things that we value, the things that we think make us good, God himself says, get them away from me. They stink. Here's a problem. Humanity is evil, messed up, and according to the message from heaven and according to the messenger, there is judgment and condemnation. That is the danger. That is the problem. That is what we need to be saved from, my friends, is condemnation for our sins. Our sins incur the judgment and the wrath of God. This is the testimony of God. The wages of sin is death. You want to play with sin? You want to violate your relationship with God and the design he has for you? You want to violate your neighbor who's just like you? Okay, you're free to do that, but your wages will be damnation and death. That's what you deserve for that. That's what we deserve. Because God is just and God is good. He's not cruel. God, Jesus is not coming out of heaven to say, I want you all to know, Up there is a cruel God, therefore we're all in danger. He comes down and he says, I want you all to know, up there is a loving God and we're all in danger. All of us are in danger. And God loves this world, therefore he sent his son to save us. But just because he's loved doesn't mean we're not in danger. We're in danger because we're sinners. God is just, God is good, and we deserve damnation and wrath. This is the uniform testimony of scripture. Verse 14, Jesus tells the story of Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness to illustrate his point. He says that what I have come into the world to do and the situation of the world is like the situation of Israel in the wilderness. And if you're familiar with the story, as Nicodemus certainly was, the Israelites were favored by God, blessed by God, and yet, and, and given commandments by God, and yet the Israelites sinned against God in the desert. They sinned by simply murmuring against him. Something that we all do. Complaining. Is God really going to feed us? Is he really going to take care of us? Have you ever had that thought? Well, it's sin. And God judged them in the desert by sending poisonous snakes that bit them in order to kill them. And lots of people died in the wilderness. Those snakes didn't just come out of the ground happens because of happenstance. Those snakes came because God sent them as a judgment upon Israel to kill them for their sins. That is what they deserved. And Jesus says, that's what the world is like. You know that story in the wilderness with Israel sinning against God and getting killed by God's judgment? Do you think that's just a story about them? Do you look at that story and say, man, those Israelites were so bad. <laughs> I'm so glad I wasn't there. Like, and I'm so glad I'm not one of them. Jesus is saying, you need to understand that is the world story. The whole world has sinned against God and is under the judgment of God. And many even now are perishing. Just like then, many were dying. Many are perishing. That's the problem. But unlike that story, not only in that story they were, they were perishing temporally, but the reality is, is that we as the world for our sins will perish eternally. How would you like to perish eternally? Perish means ruined. You're ruined. It's over. You lose. No remedy what you were designed for, fail. You're gone. You're dead. And you have nothing to look forward to for the rest of eternity, but hopelessness and ruin. So the stakes are high. The sin is great. The wrath is real. And yet, for God so loved the world. Imagine those words weren't there in the Bible. Imagine not a, not a word in the Bible said, for God so loved the world. I'd like to say, I'd like to comment on two ways, two things here that reveal the exceedingly great and magnificent love of God in the text. For God so loved the world. How do we know when, when, when it is said here, he so loved the world, there's, this, there's an intention here to point to the magnitude of the love of God. It doesn't just say God loves the world, but he so loved the world. Amen. There's a, an intention to show in this text what kind of love God has and how amazing it is. And there's two ways we can see how amazing it is. Number one, we can see the magnitude of the love of God in the fact that God loves the exceedingly sinful world. What is amazing about the love of God here, when it says that God loves the world, is not that he loves so many. That is not what's amazing here in verse 16. For God so loves the world. Wow! That's big love. Because he loves so many. The world's a big place. That's not the sense of this verse. But that he loves those who are so bad. Wow! God loves the world, the bad world. That shows us how amazing his love is. For God so loved the world. Think bad. For we are not only undeserving of his love, brothers and sisters, we are not merely undeserving, we are ill-deserving. We deserve the opposite, treatment. Amen? What is amazing about the love of God, and this is what Christians proclaim, this is, what we've, this is the message from heaven that we've heard from Jesus and we proclaim, that God's love is not like the love that we are so familiar with. See, the message of Christianity is not the love of God is just like the love of humans, but magnified to a really big degree. Right? That's not the message. It's not... You know what love is, right? Yeah, just magnify that to a huge degree and you'll understand the love of God. The love of God is different. And we are not familiar with this kind of love. And the closest thing that we understand in terms of love, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. He says, you know, maybe... um, Someone might die for a good person. Maybe you yourself have contemplated that. Have you ever wrestled in your own mind, would I lay down my life for my family and my friends? And you're like, yeah, I think I would. It'd be hard, but I would. Maybe someone would die for a good person. Perhaps for a righteous man, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love in this, that while we were sinners, while we were enemies, while we were haters of God, while we were idolaters, while we were narcissistic, while we were evil, while we were undeserving and ill-deserving, Christ died for us. It's an altogether different kind of love. If we were God's righteous darlings it would make perfect sense and it would be comprehensible why jesus would come into the world to save us if his righteous darlings were in danger god we are your righteous darlings in danger save us and it would make perfect sense that he would come and save us that's comprehensible but the bible tells us that god's love in christ jesus is incomprehensible it doesn't make sense And so if you find yourself thinking about the love of love of God in terms of what makes sense to you, then you're not understanding for God so loved the world. It is true that God's love for the world, the bad and evil and ill-deserving world, is not the only kind of love that God has and that the Bible talks about. In fact, the rest of the Gospel of John, when it talks about the love of God, isn't even talking about God's love for the world. Most of it is talking about his love for his son or his love for his sheep and his people. And so Jesus talks a lot about how the Father loves him and how he loves the Father and how if you believe in me, then the Father will love you and then we'll be all together in love. The Bible does talk about other kinds of the love of God. He has that. A love for his son, who is right his righteous darling, and he does love him. And his love for his people, who we as Christians are his righteous darlings. <laughs> if I keep using that phrase, we are that, and he loves you in that way, and he'll take care of you and cherish you because you are the apple of his eye, and he loves you that way. So God has that love. He does. But this love that is being spoken of here in John 3.16 is not that kind of love for his son and for his people, which, by the way, is the kind of love that you and I can understand, you know? Love for our own, right? We can understand that. But this love is his unique love that is unique to him alone, this is a unique revelation of God. If you were to show up and say, or if the, man, if the messenger from heaven was to show up and say, God loves the righteous, everyone would say, yeah, I knew that. And it would be totally true. He does love the righteous. We proclaim that. But this is a unique revelation of God. And mark this, you cannot know God apart from understanding this unique love. You can't know him. You do not know him. You may, you may profess all the day long that God is a God of love and you may mean only the human kind of love that we're all used to magnified to a big degree and he loves so much those who keep his commandments and he loves so much his son and he loves so much the righteous and he takes care of them and all that and you'd be saying something true but you don't know who God is until you know that he loves those who are not his children. And he loves those who are not his son. (laughs) He loves the unrighteous, and he gave his son for them. Isn't that wonderful? This is the God that we proclaim. This is the message from heaven. The second thing that shows the kind and the magnitude of the love of God is seen in the fact that he gave... So first of all, I said that he loves the exceedingly sinful world. That shows his unique love. And the second fact is he gave his exceedingly precious one and only son for the world. So you see the love of God also in this. Not only in the object of who he is loving, the sinful world, but in the gift itself, right? How much does God love this world? Well, let's look at what he's done for the world. Let's look at this gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So in understanding the gift, we're going to understand his love. The term, the phrase here, only begotten, is meant to communicate pricelessness, intimacy, and love. It's not, now it is true, Jesus is God's only son from eternity. But the phrase isn't meant to just say his only, there's only one, but it's to communicate the fact that there is only one and therefore precious to God, priceless to God, intimate with God. And God loves this righteous darling of his How great must be the love of God that he would give his precious one and only son. The Puritan, John Flavel, tells the story of a family during a, a serious famine in Germany. I'm not sure what famine that was, but he has, he has this story of a, a family in Germany during a famine yeah, it was a couple with four children, and they ran out of food, and so they were dying. The four, the the six of them were dying, and the and the mother and the father are t- trying to decide what to do. We've got four kids, we got no food, we're all gonna die. And the the father suggests to the mother, you know, this is a horrid thought, but. Perhaps we could sell one of our children into uh, servitude, and with that money, we could save the rest of us. I mean, everyone would survive. The child would be uh, taken care of in servitude somewhat, and we would at least have money for food. So perhaps this is what we should do. Instead of everyone dying, maybe we should sell a child. Well, they think about it. Well, which child should we sell? (laughs) There's four well, we can't sell the first child because the first child, he's our firstborn. He's the beginning of our strength. He's the first child that we had and he's precious and priceless to us and so it can't be that first. Well, it can't be the second child because the second child looks just like me, says the father. This, this of all my children, this one looks like me, acts like me. I have a special connection with this child and it, we can't, do the second one, that, that's too special to me. Well, the mother says, well, we can't sell the third one because that third child looks just like me and acts like me, and I have a special connection with that. And, you know, so, no, we, there's no way we can... That third child is not going to be sold. And then they think, well, the fourth? Well, we can't sell the fourth child. That's our last child. That's our baby. That's our Benjamin, you know? And so they decide, you know, we entertain the idea, we just cannot conceive of giving up one of our children for this cause, for saving ourselves. We can't, we're just going to die together. Now brothers and sisters, if they would not give one of their four children to servitude, not even to death, but to servitude, to save themselves, the the poor family that's starving. What a wonder it is. What a wonder and a marvel it is that God gave his one and only precious son to torture unimaginable for this evil world. What an amazing contrast And in the giving of his Son, we see how amazing is the love of God. When God gave his Son for the world to save the world and to bring eternal life to the world, how did he do it? How did the Son of God save the world? How does he bring life? Jesus already told us in Verse fourteen that the situation of the world is comparable to the situation of Israel in the desert in the wilderness, just like Israel has sinned against God, the world sins against God, just like Israel is under judgment and perishing because they deserve it, so the world is perishing so they de- because they deserve it, and the clue to salvation is found in this story according to Jesus. Moses was instructed by God to build a a bronze pole and a bronze snake to put the snake upon the pole to lift it up for the camp of Israel who are dying and perishing to see and that whoever looks at that pole and when they look at that pole, what do they see? They see a a serpent. They see their judgment upon it. That's what they see. The wrath of God upon them, they see represented upon that pole. And when they look at that, God says, whoever looks will be saved. Whoever looks will be healed. Whoever looks will not die. The bronze snake had no inherent power to heal them. True? If it did, we'd probably see a lot more bronze snakes in this world, right? (laughs) The bronze snake had no inherent power to heal them. God, in his mercy, in his grace, they didn't deserve this at all, and by his own power healed them when they looked at that snake. Not because that snake had any inherent power to save, but God healed them by virtue of what that snake represented and symbolized. Otherwise, there, w- there couldn't be any healing. That snake symbolized something beyond itself. And Jesus here tells us what it symbolized. The snake symbolized the Son of Man being lifted up. That is, the snake on the pole symbolized Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The crucifixion of Jesus. Concrete historical fact. 2,000 years ago... Historians all get it. Jesus was crucified. And here Jesus is saying that that snake symbolized my being lifted up upon the cross. Not only brothers and sisters has the cross does the cross have power to actually save us, but it is said in scripture to be The power of God to save. The cross saves us not because it is a symbol that points us somewhere else. The cross saves us because Jesus on the cross in history actually bore our judgment and our sin and the wrath of God. When you look at Jesus, maybe you see, you know, when you look at him... uh, In your mind, in your heart, by faith, when you see him there, you're actually seeing not a representation of the wrath of God, you're seeing the Son of Man bearing (laughs) your judgment, your sins, your curse upon himself so that you can be saved and have eternal life. This is a wondrous thing. God so loved the world that he let it slide. No, that's not what the verse says, right? God so loved the world that he let it slide. He can't let it slide. Our sin is real. Your sin is real. I want to remind you that this morning. The sins that you have committed, will commit today. And you will commit tomorrow are real sins that deserve worse than poisonous snakes biting you. Your sins deserve death. If we forget this as Christians, how horrible, how horribly real our sins are, we'll forget the love of God, won't we? You have violated God and your neighbor because you're selfish and I am selfish and we're all guilty. And God can't let it slide. Sin is a real problem. God's justice is real. God's judgments and wrath are real. Unquestionably, definitely, absolutely, there is no other way for you and I to be saved but through the death of Jesus. All other ideas of salvation are false. If anyone tells you, you don't need the death of Jesus to be saved because God is so loving, that's a barbaric thing thing to think about. God is more loving than you Christians think. You know, God is merciful, forgiving, and loving. He doesn't need a blood atonement sacrifice to forgive sin. You guys misunderstand the love of God. If you really knew the love of God, you'd realize he just forgives. Or if someone comes along and says, you guys don't understand the love of God. The love of God is not in the death of Jesus. That's a a false idea. No one can die for you. The love of God is in him giving you the chance to repent again. You know, you've blown it. And I know you deserve death, but God loves you so much he'll give you the chance to repent again. And again and again until you finally get it. How loving is God? There is no other way. According to the message of heaven, from the one who really knows what's going on up there, there is no other way for us to be saved but through the death of Jesus Christ. And that is because human beings are hopelessly sinful and messed up. We will not repent of our sins and do what we need to do. And because God is a just God. He cannot let it slide. But because he loves us, he gave his son. What can wash away my sin? We sang. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He was crucified for our sins, his blood was literally shed. Jesus gave up the ghost, and he, according to the Bible, satisfied the justice and the judgment of god in our behalf he took our place he took our sins he paid the penalty he took the wages so that you and i don't have to and he is held up for all the world to see so that whoever believes upon him will not perish eternally but will have everlasting life or eternal life which does not only mean endless life but the knowledge of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Not not only are we saved by the death of Jesus Christ but we come to know who God is by the death of Jesus Christ. We come to know him in his justice in his righteousness and in his love. This is the message of heaven. This is what it precisely is. This is the light that has come into the world. You're hearing it this morning. Maybe you've heard it many times and have embraced it. If you haven't embraced it, you're hearing it again this morning. And you've hitherto rejected it if you've heard it before. But this is the truth of God. This is the message. And finally, in conclusion, in verse 18 and 21, we have two responses to the message from heaven. There are only two. When the truth of God comes to any person, the truth of God, the message from heaven, declares to that person they are unrighteous. It doesn't come along and say, just try a little harder, you can do it. It doesn't come along and say, God will let it slide. It comes along and says, You are messed up. You deserve hell. And God won't let it slide. You're so bad, you don't even realize how bad you are. That's what the message from heaven says. It also says, God has given his son to save you. If you'll accept the first premise, that you are hopelessly unrighteous and deserving of death, then you'll understand the second premise. That is, God loves you and he sent his son to die for you. That's a historical fact and in it you'll see his love and the way of salvation. And there's only two options to this, evil or truth. Believing or not believing, it says here in verse 18. The one who believes is not condemned. The one who doesn't believe is condemned already. It's not... The options are not works, rituals, and laws. The option is faith or no faith. Unbelief or belief. Acceptance of the truth or rejection of the truth. That's it. That's the difference between eternity in heaven or eternity in hell is what you do with this message. That's it. Because what you do with the message is ultimately what you do with God. And the light that has come into the world is more real and brighter than the physical light That was created on the first day. It's real light. And if a person accepts this light, this truth, and believes it, they can be in the darkest dungeon where there is no physical light, and they are in the light, according to the Bible, right? And if a person rejects this message, they can be standing out in the brilliance of the sun. They can get on a spaceship and shoot themselves at the sun. And they are in darkness, according to the Bible. Utter, real darkness, if they reject this message. And it is it is explained here why people do not become Christians. People have all sorts of excuses why they don't become Christians. But John nineteen John 3:19 and 20 tells us why people don't become Christians. They don't become Christians because they hate the message. They don't become Christians because they know they're guilty and they don't want to confess it. Every single person knows deep down that they are not right with God and they are not morally what they should be. Everybody knows this. And the question is, will you acknowledge it or will you pretend that that's not the case? Will you be a hypocrite and will you maintain the facade of personal righteousness? Or will you confess your sins and find that God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness? Will you, you, will you accept his gift of righteousness? Will you humble yourself and receive from him what you need instead of stubbornly saying, I can do it myself? What an exchange It's an amazing exchange that people would exchange God's love for such hypocrisy. Reject this love of God? For what? What do you gain by your hypocrisy? Nobody else really cares about your self-righteousness but yourself. And you reject knowing God, your creator, and spending eternity with him and in his love, for a fleeting few years of hypocrisy. The text says that their guilt is actually increased by rejecting Jesus. Not only are you a sinner for all your violations of God and your neighbor, but your sin is even increased by rejecting the light. But on the other hand, verse 21 tells us that there are those who do the truth, this is the opposite of the evil of hypocrisy. This is those who believe. That's all this means when it says, Those who do or practice the truth are those who, when the truth comes to them, believe. They confess, I am guilty. I am unrighteous. I am worthy of death. And thanks be to God for the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, I, I see the love of God, I take refuge in his love not in my hypocrisy and the amazing thing is verse 21 says when a person believes the truth and comes to the light instead of receiving the expected shame the surprise is that when you confess your sins you're delivered from shame completely (laughs) isn't that amazing whoever believes in him the bible says will not be ashamed and so you are guilty, you are ill-deserving, you are shameful, and when you confess it, you are cleansed by what Jesus Christ has done for you, and you're not ashamed, you're actually, you actually receive approbation. Isn't that incredible? Approbation for what? because what you have done has been done in God. Kind of an enigmatic phrase. I'm not even fully sure I understand what it means, but it probably means something like, what you have done by confessing your sin was done according to the will of God. You were not running from God by doing that. You were embracing him. This is the messenger from heaven, not second-hand but first-hand. Christianity proclaims this. God has come and told us the truth. This is the message from heaven. This world is under God's wrath and condemnation, but God so loves this world that he gave his exceedingly precious one and only son to bear our sins and pay the penalty for them so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And there's two responses to it. To do the evil thing, which is to harden your heart against it and to not accept it and keep pretending that you're righteous. Or to confess your sins and trust in what Christ has done and in the love of God. That's the, those are the main contours of the Christian faith and of Christianity. You want to know basically what Christianity is about? That's it. This is it. I want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters who are Christians, who have entered the light, confessed their sins, and have believed in Jesus. Jesus says, be of good courage. Your sins are forgiven. He says that. He loves you, and he loves you in a unique way, of course, in that he he died for you, but he also loves you now as his righteous darling. Not because your righteousness is your own works, but because... You are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. God loves you in every conceivable way as a Christian. You are his and he takes care of you. You are righteous. You have his approbation, not because of anything you've earned or done, but because of Christ alone Amen. and only because of Christ. May you see how much he loves you. May we all see, whether you're a Christian today or not, may we all see his unique love revealed in Christ. May we all rest Ourselves in his love, and may all of us enjoy his eternal life. Let's pray. Please stand with me, Father. No words do justice to your love. I pray that you would help us to gaze upon. the historical death of Christ and to understand that and to see your love there brilliantly displayed. Thank you for your love which has given us our hope. Draw those who do not know you. And Lord, we love you so much for what you have done for us in love. We love you because you first loved us. We praise you this morning afresh.